You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, this is William Wiley. I'm here again for our second part talking about enhancements of intraocular lenses and how do you enhance those challenging cases after cataract or premium intraocular lens surgery. I'm joined again by my colleagues, Blake Williamson, Priya Matthews, and Arjun Hura. You know, again, uh, in the past, we just had basic cataract surgery and pretty much assumed that the patient was going to be wearing glasses. And so we didn't worry too much about touching them up. But now the day of premium IOLs, the expectations are so high. And for those lenses to perform well, you want to hit that target. You know, we've got trifocals, extended of the focus. We're doing mini monovision, all these things. Uh, and for, for them to have the best outcome, you really need to hit that refractive target. So uh, yeah, I'd love to go over just a few scenarios with you all regarding touching up or enhancing a lens-based procedure. And so y'all pitch out just a, you know, kind of a, a softball here. Let's say you did a torque IOL, um, you put it in and you're planning on, let's say it's sitting at 180 degrees and they come back and it's off 20 degrees. Uh, let's say it was sitting, let's say in uh, one of your referring doctor's office and now you're six weeks out and it's uh, sitting at 20 degrees and the, more or less the astigmatism is not correct. They've got a diopter to have astigmatism. The torque lens is really not functioning. What's your go-to method for solving that torque lens that, that is off axis? I think you need to rotate it as soon as you can. You know, the earlier, the better, uh, especially with some of these lenses like the uh, Technus, the new Technus uh, 2 is super sticky, uh, almost too much. So that's why it doesn't, it doesn't rotate near as much. All the fibronectin on the uh, on the Alcom platforms also gets really sticky, um, so you want to try to rotate that as soon as you can. Um, you know, certainly want to do a, a refraction, and they have all the online calculators that you can plug in to kind of see where you need sure. to go. But if you've got a solid twenty degree rotation, um, yeah, I would try to go in and rotate as soon as soon as you can to make it easy for you. Totally agree. Any other thoughts on a, a pretty straightforward torque misalignment? Yeah, agreed. And then, I mean, I give the patient, I, I've like done LASIK on these patients too, even if the torque rotated, let's say it was a really small pupil or let's say I'm not, I think that they may even need a touch up after that. I just go ahead and, um, you know, do, do, do the LASIK and take care of both. Here, the spherical equivalent is zero, right? A plus yes. one minus two. So that, yeah, that, that, yeah, that yeah. means you're pretty much hit it on target. So you have more confidence that a torque rotation should work well. That's a good point. You want to kind of get a sense of what the refraction is going to be after a rotation. Worst case scenario is you rotate it and get it back to the intended axis, but they still have a refractive error. They're like, doc, you put me back through the the ringer here and and I'm still not happy. So you you want to be confident that that adjustment is going to get you to where you need to be. Uh, Arjun, now you, you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I totally agree with what's been said so far. My default here would be to just definitely rotate that eyewall back to position. But like Priya said, sometimes doing LASIK is the right option. And this is a patient where the spherical equivalent for the refraction is essentially Plano. If they weren't a good LASIK candidate, you could do PRK for them and still have a pretty reliable postoperative outcome. For some patients, you know, as surgeons to us, taking a patient to the operating room isn't a big deal. But for a lot of patients, going through cataract surgery can be anxiety-provoking, lots of stress, and the thought of having to go back to the OR again and go through all of that, even for something as simple as just rotating a toric IOL, sometimes psychologically that can be a lot to take in. So these patients are sometimes much more amenable to just doing LASIK in the laser suite. The only other thing I would bring up is the timing of doing this. 
Like Blake said, you want to rotate the IOL if you're going to rotate it as soon as possible to make that job easy. But if you're going to do laser vision correction, if you're going to do LASIK or PRK, most surgeons are going to wait at least several months to make sure that the refractive error is stable. So now, if it's a patient who maybe, depending on their personality, might be itching to get it corrected, that's when maybe rotating the IOL would be the more preferred option. Thanks, Arjun. Uh, great uh, thoughts there. So uh, let's go over So uh, another scenario where um, you've nailed the astigmatism, the patient comes back, uh, zero still, but you've put a trifocal in, let's say, and now they're hyperopic say plus one, plus 150, and the patient says, you know what, doc, my distance is blurry, my near is not quite where I want it to be. What's, what's the group's, you know, favorite approach or more or less just a hyperopic, you know, spherical correction, let's say you're six months out of surgery and uh, you want to get that patient uh, to the right spot. So if they're plus one, plus 150, what are your thoughts there? I would, I would explant it uh, as soon as I could. Um, so the yeah. sooner the better. You know, a plus 150, even if they're two, two months out, you know, if they're a solid plus 150 at, month, at, at, at four weeks out and they're a solid plus 150 at eight weeks out, you know, that's even a case where I'm not going to make them wait three, four months because that's the thing is like you always hear, oh, you got to wait three and four months for sure because you never know. But that patient sure. is like so unhappy every single day of those months. And that third month, those last 30 days talking about, you know, all to their friends. Oh my gosh, I paid all this money and I, you know, I can't see anything. That's someone that, that I'm pretty, you know, it's a pretty easy answer to, to go ahead and, you know, um, explant them as soon as you can, um, and, and put a different prescription implant in and, and they'll be very happy. I just don't like doing a hyperopic ablation on top of a trifocal lens. You know, it, you just, it's better just to swap, swap it out. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's a tough treatment uh, to do um, hyperopic on the cornea, particularly hyperopic PRK, I think is a tough, uh, tough go. I feel like those regress a lot. It's hard to predict. Hyperopic LASIK even has some ability to regress over time. And so I agree. Uh, how about uh, you ever consider piggyback IOL on this scenario? In the, in this setting, I, I would exchange it. I feel like that's exchange the most straight. You're going in the eye anyways. You know, yeah. but I am curious to ask you both or, or all three of you, um, is there like a maximum amount of time that you would, you know, that you would consider exchanging it? So if they're over a certain number of years, would you say, sorry, you can't exchange it for whatever reason they couldn't come back in between because this patient was one year out. Is there a max time for you? You know, for me, at least like if they, um, if, if, if they haven't had a YAG, um, then, you know, really within that whole first year, I feel pretty confident that I can get it out. Let's say it's like year two, they're two and a half years in, um, and they haven't had a YAG yet. Um, you know, you may be okay, but that may be a situation where I say, Hey, listen, um, this is a more difficult case. Here's what could go wrong. Um, worst case scenario, what I may do is just amputate the uh, haptics, um, and put in a monofocal implant into the sulcus. Now that's not going to give you that beautiful near vision like you have, but hopefully you're having some pretty good near vision in the other eye. Um, and, and you'll still have some, some functionality there. Um, so I've had that happen a few times where I just, you know, I can't get the thing out and I'm about to rip the bag and I say, you know what, I just amputate the haptics, put in a slide in the sulcus lens and they do very well, um, uh, with that. But that's, you know, that, that's a, a conversation you'd want to have, but um, as far as like a clear cutoff, you know, um, you know, I start to get more concerned or, you know, or, or less confident. I, I would say that 
when someone's had that implant in there for more than like three years, um, that, that can get kind of a sticky situation. You can, they can end up worse than what they started with. And, you know, and then, and if you're the one that, if you didn't do the primary surgery, but you're doing this one, they're your baby now, the second, the second you touch <laughs> right. them, you know? So it's like all those considerations come into play for me. Bill, what do you think? Totally agree. And I think, uh, those are tough cases. And a lot of times you don't know what you're going to get until you get in there. And so, uh, I've done it as, as far out as, you know, three, maybe four years. Um, and, and, but sometimes, you know, it, you, you just can't get the lens out. So sometimes I, I have had to amputate the uh, haptics that you discussed, Blake. A lot of times, if it's just a spear correction I'm, I'm going for, I'll have uh, our consent uh, discuss that we'll do either lens exchange or secondary IOL or piggyback IOL. So I tell them, you know what, I'm going to try to get it out. I think there's something psychological that goes along that the patients perceive like this lens is not good. I want a different lens. And so if you can exchange it, I think there's some psychological benefits that goes into that by removing, quote, the bad lens. But I tell them, you know what, sometimes that lens is challenging to remove and we can just put a secondary lens on top of it. A lot of times these patients have had contact lens trials to show what it might be like. I'm like, you know, it's just like the contact we place on top of your eye. This is not just going to go inside the eye. We'll place a secondary lens. Uh, and they've had great success there. You know, uh, Arjun, I know uh, we had you look at uh, uh, in Cleveland some uh, results of secondary uh, IOLs or piggyback IOLs. You know, any thoughts as far as the type of material and some of the dogma that's out there uh, after your analysis of uh, a series of cases? Yeah, this is a little bit of a branch off of what we were discussing, but historically, I feel that surgeons have always feared piggyback lenses because of the risk of interlenticular opacification. But truthfully, that has only really ever been shown with two acrylic lenses placed in the capsular bag. And so for the longest time, surgeons have felt, okay, as long as one of the lenses is acrylic and one is silicon, as long as one's in the bag, one's in the sulcus, then things are safe. But what we demonstrated in Cleveland, actually looked at our past 10 years worth of piggyback lens data, we always had one acrylic lens in the bag and then a second acrylic lens, usually a sensor AR40, as the piggyback lens in the sulcus. And when I brought these patients back, dilated them, took slit lamp photos, what we found was that the incidence of interlenticular opacification was zero. And so we feel that as long as one lens is in the bag and one lens is in the sulcus, both of those IOLs can still be acrylic. And I really like the AR40 lens. It's a great three-piece lens for the sulcus. And sometimes, especially if you're trying to mitigate this residual refractive error several years out, where it may be a little bit difficult to get the lens out of the bag, Slipping in an IOL into the sulcus, especially if it's not a high-powered or thick lens, it's a very simple and elegant way of potentially just correcting most of the refractive error on the spot. And sometimes, if they had a lot of residual refractive error, maybe even just cutting down on it so that it's only 20-25% to 25 of that is good enough. And sometimes good enough is better than trying to be a hero, and then you can get into a mess where the bag is out and you're suturing an IOL later. Because like Blake alluded to, I think informed consent for these patients is really, really important. You want to take a scenario that's maybe suboptimal. You want to try to improve it. Maybe you can't get it perfect, but maybe improving it is still enough for that patient. You just don't want to put them down a path where now they're like, I wish I'd never gone through with this in the first place. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Um, I'm going to pitch one other scenario, another intraocular procedure, um, you know, uh, uh, implantable contact lens, ICL. I think we've seen uh, it's a great surgery uh, in general. These patients are some of our most, uh, some of our happiest patients. A lot of them are high myopes uh, that were not uh, good candidates for other uh, refractive surgery. So you put an implantable contact lens in, they've got great results. 
in particular, the new Evo, I think, is uh, taking a step forward, eliminated the need for YAG-PI, some safety aspects there. Uh, now it's on a torque platform. And so in general, we can uh, treat almost any refraction, and even some of the low refractions do amazing with the Evo. You know, Blake, you've had some uh, uh, success with low myopsins uh, uh, with the new Evo platform. But let's say you have one of these Evo lenses, and uh, you're correcting astigmatism, and the lens rotates, let's say, 90 degrees. Doesn't happen often, but but it can. Um, any thoughts on addressing an Evo um, ICL that's rotated um, sometime in the postoperative period? How do you address that, Blake? Yeah, I mean, you know, typically I try to rotate it back. Um, I think yes. that there's different uh, ways that you can um, uh, skin this cat. Um, particularly if it's a bigger eye, let's say it's like one of the larger ICLs. You know, I have had friends that this has happened to, and they rotate it, and it rotates again. And they rotate it a second time, and it rotated again. And then finally, they just explanted it and just did a spherical and did LASIK for the for the, the astigmatism correction. Um, and so some people, you know, if it's a bigger eye, will just go straight to that and put in the spherical. Um, I have yet to have to rotate an Evo uh, toric ICL. Um, I'm sure yes. I will at some point. Um, but I think that the way that, you know, we, we think about it is, is, you know, you should always do the easiest thing first. And the easiest thing to me, um, is just rotating that, um, you know, remember that, you know, it's pretty common, um, because of where these things sit, you know, we know now from, you know, Roger, Roger's work, you know, uh, he's done all the UBMs recently on these that, that most of them are in the ciliary body. They're not in the sulcus, you know, and although I have some foot plates in the sulcus, some in the ciliary body, um, and so as a result of that, that can lend itself to the rotation. Anything in this first, you know, 24 hours or so, um, that can happen to. Um, so what I try to do is just, ro I would try to rotate it back um, and, 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 you know, hope that it, it all winds up in the sulcus and not, you know, half in the ciliary body, half in the sulcus this time. You could probably do some, some um, ultrasound um, or digital high-frequency stuff to look at that. Um, but that's what I would go to first, I think. Um, even if they were a low vault, you know, with the Evo, I'm less concerned about a low vault, especially during when you're doing the rotation. Um, you know, you're going to be pumping them up with viscoelastic anyway, so it's not like we're going to be dinging the limbs, I don't think. Um, you know, that, that's probably what I would go to versus doing a, a corneal ablation uh, or explanting it altogether. But to be fair, both of those approaches are very reasonable too, and I think that you can get to where you need to go with either of those approaches. Priya, any thoughts on? Yeah, you know, when I'm picking the size for ICLs, I'm definitely thinking about is it a torque or not. With a sphere, you know, a spherical lens, yeah, I'm not as worried, right? And um, but with a torque, it really needs to be big enough, otherwise it can rotate. And I was recently talking to actually Scott Barnes about this, and he was saying that, you know, because most people are trying to undersize, since a big issue seems to be if it's the lens is too big with a high vault, um, we're seeing a lot more rotations you know, now a hundred micron vault doesn't worry me, but in this setting, um, it looks like it rotated. So it might've been too small. If I'm going to go back in the eye in this situation, I'd probably just go ahead and go up a size to the 13 two. Um, so, you know, in general, I think like roughly it's going to add another 500, 550, 600, um, to that vault. And that's still within the acceptable range. So that's probably what I would do. Nice. But like you said, like, I think either is completely um, reasonable. Totally agree. 
Arjun, uh, you once uh, clued me in on a very interesting solution for uh, an ICL that's rotated, let's say, 90 degrees. And at that point, you've doubled the astigmatism. And let's say that ICL is a sitting vertical, but it's stable and seems to be rock solid at that vertical position. What's your thought on that? And I think you clued me in on this uh, a technique that might be interesting to correct that. Yeah. So there's, I'm not sure which one you're referencing, Bill, but I can think of two things right off the top of my head. I think what's been mentioned so far, either just going yeah. back in and rotating the ICL or explanting it and exchanging it for a different size ICL, I think that's a really good first move. But the question then is, and this happens sometimes, what happens if it rotates again? And if it rotates again and it rotates to the same spot or about the same spot, I tend to feel that's a good indicator of what their sulcus anatomy, what their ciliary body anatomy is like. So if you're noticing that, okay, it's rotated again, or it's consistently in a certain direction, you can actually reach out to STAR and have them manufacture an ICL with the astigmatism correction reoriented for that axis. So if you know maybe they just have a big sulcus or there's some odd anatomy, you can actually put in an ICL that's maybe at a different axis than where you initially attended the astigmatic correction to be, because you know that ICL is going to rotate towards a certain direction. But then the other method I think is just, you have to know when you're going down this journey when to call it quits. And I think once you've been back in an eye twice to rotate an ICL, or you explant it and exchange it for a larger or smaller size, hopefully at that point the cornea is at a state where you could just do laser vision correction enhancement. And that's when I would just explant the original toric ICL, put in a spherical ICL, because it doesn't matter if a spherical ICL rotates, and then afterwards just do LASIK or SMILE to finish off the rest of that astigmatic refractive error that's remaining. Yeah, sometimes you do have to know when to call it quits, and it can be challenging. I think Arjun, you and I shared a patient in Cleveland. You probably still uh, remember this uh, very well where a patient had ICL rotated. Um, and we discussed, we said, well, we can remove it and go back in and uh, just do um, you know, LASIK to uh, fine tune the residual prescription. The patient was very adverse to LASIK. I forget why they just did not want to have flats. So we said, okay, we could do you know, um, PRK. And then we decided, you know what, we can do SMILE. And so what we ended up doing is we, but for smile, you had to have a certain amount of prescription to be able to do the smile. So we said perfectly, you know, left them undercorrected with the IOL exchange as spherical and then did smile to correct the residual sphere and cylinder uh, after. So kind of a complicated case, but the, the patient ended up doing quite well. So it was basically initially torque ICL that rotated and then exchange for a sphere uh, ICL with a little bit lower power to leave room or smile to correct the residual sphere, sphere and cylinder. So anyway, it's complicated, but a lot of times, you know, in these cases, you want to make sure if you're going back in, you want to have a plan that makes sense and the patient's bought into uh, and that, uh, you know, everybody can know will have a great outcome at the, at the end. So anyways, um, we're kind of getting close to our, our uh, hour here. And so wanted to just uh, make sure everybody had one last chance to say anything more about enhancements or anything more that comes to mind uh, working with these uh, these patients, so you know, Blake, any final thoughts on uh, on enhancements here? Yeah, you know, I would say that um, you know it's important for us to realize that we we live in a bubble. Uh, those of us on this podcast and people that we talk to, and we act like, of course, you you need to do enhancements. But the reality is, is that in most of our towns, whether it be Cleveland, Ohio, or Los Angeles, or Baton Rouge, there's just not that many people that do them flat out. You know, there, there's a lot of people who do toric IOLs and multifocal IOLs, but they don't do, a, a, you know, they, they don't, you know, offer enhancements, at least not, you know, 
to the degree that they're probably needed. So I think that for those of you who are listening to this podcast, who, you know, um, you know, maybe haven't, don't remember the last time they did an enhancement, but you're doing multifocal eye wells and LASIK and stuff like that. You may want to kind of think twice about how many of those people, uh, how many of your patients are out there who are kind of mildly to moderately happy, but not quite ecstatic. And, and, and that means that they're kind of talking about their experience, um, you know, in the community. Um, you know, you might want to think about who's seeing your post-ops. You might want to think about, would you even know if someone ended up minus one, right, or, or minus 75 uh, and are kind of okay with their procedure, but not quite over the moon about it. Um, that's not really what builds our specialty. It's not what builds refractive surgery. Um, I think making people ecstatic, you know, the difference between, I always say there's a difference between 20 happy and 20 hell yes. It's completely different. And I know that from my own LASIK experience. So I just think it's important that we kind of, you know, um, take this on as, as comprehensive refractive surgeons um, and, and do our best to get these people, you know, into the end zone, doing the touchdown dance, uh, not just hanging out on the 10 yard line. That's how I think that, you know, word of mouth and practice building and, and, and all that stuff, that, that's where you get it. You, you, you don't get it from making people you know, better, but not quite there. You, you you get it you, you get it from you know getting the grand slam so super important to incorporate um, all these things that we've learned from the various scenarios uh, I've certainly learned a lot and so I appreciate it thanks Blake yeah. that's awesome Priya any thoughts yeah I completely agree and I'll just add to that that um, you know if for some reason you can't you know for the people who are listening to this you can't enhance them just partner up with the LASIK surgeon that you trust. So there are a few people in town that are part of, you know, different practices that I'll, if they have a premium lens, uh, you know, a patient that needs an enhancement, I'll do it for them. And, you know, our practices work out the, the, you know, financial part of it, but, you know, they, you know, we speak highly of each other and that's not a problem. I think if you're friends, you know, we're, we all want to have happy patients. I think that, that's definitely something reasonable to consider partnering up with someone. Um, the other thing I just want to add is that it's also important to tell a patient if you know from the beginning that you can't enhance them. And I'm saying this because I do enhancements for a lot of people, you know, and sometimes, you know, we, we have, um, we're pretty good about that in general with, pre, with uh, the multifocal lenses. But sometimes, for example, what we call custom, which is just like dis great distance vision without um, glasses, either a monofocal or monofocal toric you still know in the beginning, you're not going to be able to do laser vision correction on that patient. And it's important to tell them that, you know, that, you know, we can do this. We're going to do the best we can to get you glasses free, but there's still a chance that you may need glasses and just document it in your consultation note, because then it's not a surprise afterwards um, if you can't do it. Awesome. But it's been a really great experience to learn from all of you. Um, so it's been really nice. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Arjun, last thoughts. Wow. Well, what can I say that hasn't already been said? That was really eloquently put by both Blake and Priya. I would just maybe end on this note again, speaking to the listener, which is if you're someone who's in practice and maybe you don't have access to a laser vision correction suite, maybe you don't feel comfortable doing LASIK or Smile or PRK, as Priya mentioned, definitely partner up with someone in the community, partner up with a friend who can help you out. And I would say when I, when I do surgery, I try to take a lot of pride in my work. So if I'm doing surgery for a patient and the outcome the first time isn't exactly what was intended or the patient is unhappy or the outcome is suboptimal, I try to strive to be the best I can be and maximize my potential as a surgeon to help 
get them to the outcome that's desired. And that might mean learning a new procedure or visiting another surgeon or having conversations like this to continue to gain knowledge and understand the nuances of our field. Because ultimately, this is the profession that I chose, and I don't want to half-ass it. I want to make sure I'm doing the best possible job I can. So I would encourage people who aren't maybe doing IOL exchanges or people who aren't comfortable doing LASIK or PRK enhancements to almost, in a sense, go back to the books and attend conferences, attend meetings, attend webinars, talk to your friends, visit other surgeons, because being able to offer an enhancement to a patient who maybe had a suboptimal outcome or a patient who paid quite a bit of out-of-pocket cost for a certain IOL, like Blake said, that can be the difference between an okay result or a 20 happy result or a 20 hell yeah result. And so I would just say, don't feel like you can't learn something new if you've been out in practice or, you know, I have a LASIK surgeon in town and he and she will take care of that. The patient is going to love it if you, the surgeon, continue on that journey with them and get them over that finish line. So do all you can to just make patients as happy as possible. And I think you'll find your own practice all the more fulfilling. Well, uh, all very well said. It's so great to have the three of you. Uh, I learned a lot tonight and uh, thanks for your thoughts and your time. Really appreciate it, and, you know, and everybody uh, really chimed in. I, I I do agree that these are challenging cases, but we do need to embrace them uh, and not ignore them. And you know, to get those twenty hell yeah, as Blake said, I think we've got to embrace these enhancements and do the right thing and get them to where they need to be. So, thank you again, and uh, uh, we'll see you all soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on iTube.net.